but now. Good morning, Redeemer. Or should I just say howdy? All right. So thankful to uh, pastors Marcus and Justin for allowing me to be here this morning to bring God's word to you, and I I hope you'll be blessed uh, as we consider uh, God's word this morning. Uh, As Marcus introduced me, he mentioned that I'm from Kenya. I did grow up in Kenya, and uh, I'm pastoring a small church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's a Presbyterian church, so whatever risk Marcus took to invite uh, a Presbyterian minister to come and speak at a Baptist church, I have no idea what he was thinking, but... um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm really blessed to uh, uh, be friends with Justin. I've known him and his family for a long time, and they've been a, uh, just a huge blessing in my life, and Marcus is all right. Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll keep getting to know him. No, I love you too, Mark. Um, I, you know, at our church, we usually uh, begin, uh, you know, considering God's word by honoring God's word by standing. So I don't know if you do that, but if you don't, I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me uh, as we read God's holy and inspired word, um, the letter uh, of Paul to the church in Ephesus. We're reading this morning from Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read from verses 15 to the end. Do you hear now the reading of God's holy word? For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all the rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of God. You pray with me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word, O Lord, lasts forever. Lord, I don't know how many of us are coming to you this morning with hearts that are troubled and needing to be encouraged by your word, but Lord, you know. I do not know how many of us come with a doubting heart and mind that they need their faith to be renewed. Lord, you do know. I don't know how many of us come before you with joyful hearts and wanting to celebrate before you all the things that you've done for them. But Lord, you know. Would you continue to fill us with that joy as well? So Lord, would you soften our hearts that we may hear you this morning we may be encouraged and built up, and that we may honor you in all that we do for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So my wife and I enjoy, or used to enjoy, a show, if you've ever seen it. It's called Gold Rush on Discovery. Uh, it's a competitive show about these gold miners that go around, you know, looking for gold mines, and, and they compete by, you know, how, mu- how, how, someone is gonna, how much gold someone is able to mine and then sell it, and how much money they can make. 
uh, we don't watch the show anymore, but I remember one time watching an episode that episodes that were shot in Ghana in West Africa. Uh, if you know anything about West Africa and Ghana, you know that they, uh, the, you know, those countries are rich uh, in, in gold. I mean, if you want good gold, you can go to Ghana and you can, you know, mine gold or South Africa. And so uh, the show w- went like this. It was two Americans that were gold miners, professional gold miners, so to speak, and they went into remote villages in West Africa where they found these, uh, you know, uh, small-scale gold miners that would sit, uh, you know, in, in these rich gold deposits. They would sit there with their shovels and crude tools, and they would dig up a little bit of dirt, and they would sit there with their shallow pans, and they would do, you know, put water in, you know, if you know anything about gold and how you kind of do the thing, and you find your little you know, specs, and they would take whatever little gold they could find, and they would go to the black market and sell it, and, you know, some of them would misuse the money and drinking and all of that. But these local miners knew that they were sitting on vast riches of gold. The problem was they did not have the right kinds of tools and resources to appropriate the gold that sat underneath where they lived, right? And so, lo and behold... These American miners come with their trommels and their huge sluice boxes and their dry washers. And lo and behold, they dig up the dirt and they were able to open up the riches that existed in this community. And they were able to get a whole lot of gold. Why? Because they had the right tools and the right resources to mine the gold. So here's my question to you, my friends here at Redeemer. Is it possible that as God's people sometimes we sit on vast riches from Christ because we do not know how to appropriate those blessings? The reason why I say that is because Paul here in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, chapter 1 verses 15 to the end, uh, you know, Paul is alluding to something that he's already talked about in verses 3 to, to 14. That in, in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, Paul begins by writing this long, one long, ginormous, magnificent, unpunctuated sentence. In Greek, there are no commas. It's just one long sentence. I mean, imagine Paul saying things like, you know what blessings you have in God? And just keep, you know, keeps on going because he is so excited to tell the church about all the blessings they have in Christ that he did not want to pause. Much like I'm talking this morning. And so he's reminding the church in the very beginning of all the spiritual blessings they have in Christ Jesus. And then in verses 15 to the end, he tells them, I have told you that from the very beginning that God chose you to be, you, you know, for you to be his people. That God has forgiven you, that your sins are forgiven, that you now belong. You've been adopted. You ex- you're able to experience and enjoy the blessings of what it means to be a child of God. All these blessings are yours. Now here's how how you can gain those blessings. Now here's how you can have those blessings. Here's how you can, you can appropriate these blessings. And so Paul is basically telling the church to do a couple of things. He's telling the church to give thanks to God for what he has already done for them in Christ. But he's also praying for them that God, by his spirit, may open the eyes of their hearts. We'll see what that means. So that they may grasp the vast riches, so that they may understand, so that they may know just what a wealth of blessings they have in Christ Jesus. Church of Jesus Christ, don't you want to know 
If you're a believer, you know that you have all these blessings from God. And I'm not talking about just material stuff right here, right? I'm talking about spiritual blessings in Christ. Don't you want to know how to appropriate those blessings and to live in light of that? That's exactly what we're going to find out today. And as one great theologian, John Stott, says, you know, when we do that, when we give thanks to God for what he has done for us, when we keep pleading in prayer to God to help us to grasp the rich blessings we have in him, we are keeping our spiritual equilibrium, which is what I titled our sermon for today. So let's begin, verses 15 uh, and 16. First, the first thing, just two points. First thing is, we must keep praising God for what he has already done for us in Christ. We must keep praising God for what he has already done for us in Christ. So verse 15, Paul says, for this reason, what reason? So we go back in chapter 1, verses 11, and we read there Paul had said, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's the reason. That's the reason that Paul is saying, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul is taking us back and reminding the Gentile Christians, these non-Jewish Christians, that you guys heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You heard what Christ has done for you. You now belong. You are God's children. Don't forget that. You may not be the Jews with their circumcision and all those things. You now have actually have access to God. You belong to Jesus Christ. This is your inheritance which has been sealed because now you have the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is joining the church and giving thanks to God for their saving faith. You have received this gift from God. It is now yours. Again, Paul had began by, you know, giving thanks to God for the blessings he bestows on his people. Now Paul is giving thanks for the activity of God or for the work, for the divine work that God is doing in their life. And it is this. Giving thanks for two things in particular. What did he say? Because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward one another. I said someone was going to mix my notes up so they can get me. That's exactly what happened. Kurt, where are you? Are you right there? So he's praising God for the blessings that he bestows on his people, but also the, you know, the divine work that God is doing in their life. And Paul is giving thanks because of these two things, their faith and their love. But we can also add another one. I tried, right? Faith, love, and hope. They remain, right? And he's saying that these two are clear evidence. Your faith in Jesus Christ, but also your love for one another. These things are clear evidence that Christ is at work in your life. That God has been at work in your life. That the church in Ephesus, not only rested their salvation in Jesus Christ, but also their everyday life. That it wasn't just saying, we believe in Jesus, we profess this faith in Christ. But also that because of our faith, we're enabled to serve one another, to love one another. It's a purposeful and intentional, willful, thoughtful love for all people, including 
the unlovely, right? As we would say, it is the very love of God that was evident in their life. Paul is giving thanks for that. That their love is actually proof of the breaking down of barriers that divided the Jews and the Gentiles, as Paul is going to talk about in chapter 2, if you continue reading in chapter 2. That it's through love that this church was able to, they were able to serve one another as Gentiles. And Paul heard about it. And what did he say instead of being resentful and saying, I mean, look at how the Gentile Christians in Ephesus are doing so well. And they're loving each other and they're, they're making sacrifices for each other. So, goodness, you know, I'm going to resent them for doing that. No, Paul praises God. He says, praise be to God for all the things that God is doing in your life. Because I know my heart. I don't know about you, but I know about my heart. When I hear things going on that are tremendous and amazing and God is at work in other places and I'm not there and Josiah is not being glorified, I get upset. Because I want to be, I want to be there. But Paul is actually saying, no, we ought to be thanking God, praising God for what he is doing even when we're not there, even when we're not involved, when God is moving and shaking things in Kakuma and Archer's post. Yes, Marcus is there and that's okay, but we can praise God for that. Amen. He's giving thanks to God because of their growth in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also their love for one another. Now, a true Presbyterian cannot preach a sermon and not quote John Calvin, so I have to. John Calvin says, as he thinks about this passage, he says, under faith and love, Paul sums up the perfection of Christians. I mean, that, that's who we are, right? A people of faith, but people that are called to love one another. That when there's faith and love in the church, we've got something to praise God for. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> so very briefly, Paul is giving thanks for this church, giving thanks to God because of their faith, and their love, and then Paul continues to intercede for this church, and, and that's what we're going to spend most of our time, because the thanksgiving is so short, but the prayer that he offers for this church is actually pretty long, you know, so he's saying, okay, church, here's how you keep your spiritual equilibrium. Begin by giving thanks to God for the work that he's doing in your life, for the work that he's doing in the life of the church. That's the beginning of us appropriating our blessings in Christ, by the way, giving thanks because of what Christ has already done for us. Not just always asking for stuff, but giving thanks for what Christ has already done. And then he begins to intercede for the church. Listen to the prayer that Paul offers for the church. He says, remembering in my prayers, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your eyes enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might. Let's pause there for one second. What is Paul doing here? Paul is making this great prayer for the church. Why? So that they may grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's praying for them to have a better spiritual vision. He wants them to be able to see so that they may be able to see three things, which I think is really the prayer that we ought to be making, you know, as a, as a people of God. To pray for what? To pray that God would enable us to understand the hope that we have in Christ Jesus 
to understand the glorious riches of our inheritance in Christ Jesus, but also the sufficient power that we have from God for those who believe. He wants the church to comprehend what God has already done for them as we saw in verses 3 and 14. But he also wants them to understand the implications of the spiritual blessings that they already have in Christ. Now again, we, we need to, 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 to remember here that and pause and say, Paul is not speaking of a fresh spiritual blessings. You know, people talk about, you know, you got to experience some fresh spiritual blessings. No. Why? Because he's already told them. The Holy Spirit that was promised, and we read in Acts 2 with the appearing of the Holy Spirit, has already sealed your belonging in Christ Jesus. You already have the Holy Spirit who is at work in your life. You already have those blessings. They're already yours in Christ. But he wants his readers not to be complacent by thinking that since they have all these spiritual blessings in Christ, it's time for us to chill and rest. We got nothing else to do, right? We don't have to grow in our understanding of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. We don't have to grow in our experience of how God has blessed us. He wants them to know that you do not need to sit. You need to keep praying to keep allowing the Lord to open the eyes of your heart so that you may, you may experience these things. And, and I, I really love how Paul addresses his prayers here uh, in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that title of God, that title of God is really related to the request that Paul is making because he's basically telling the church, when you make this prayer, know that God's grace, know that God's power, know that all his glory, all these things are unlimited. You can come to him, ask whatever you may, and he will grant it to you. I mean, isn't that a beautiful title? <laughs> it's a prayer that is offered in confidence. Confidence in God, who is able to meet their needs. He wants the church, what does he say? Uh, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and uh, revelation, uh, you know, in knowledge of him, in knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul wants the church to know God. To come to a knowledge of God. Not facts about God. You know who else believes in God? You know, right? Satan does believe in God. But he doesn't put his trust in God. So he's not talking about knowing about facts. It's not knowing that God made the heavens and the earth. It's not knowing that God lives and he's alive and he's there. It's not, it's not simply knowing that God saves. It's actually knowing that God saves and that he has saved me and having a relationship with him. Do you understand that that's countercultural? Because our desire is not to know God. That's not what we think about as human beings. That for, you know, we live, as Paul says elsewhere in Philippians, you know, for me, you know, I, I want to know God and, and the power of his resurrection. I, I want to just know him and nothing else. I want to know Christ and him crucified, Paul says. But for us as people, we don't want to know God. What do we want to know? What does our culture tell us to know? Know thyself. Know yourself. Get to know you. Get to express what you feel. It's a man-centered endeavor that only leads to futility. And here's Paul saying, I'm not praying that you may know yourself better. I pray that you may know Jesus, that you may know Christ 
so that you may begin to know who you are, that you are a sinner who is in need of God's grace and mercy. But how do we know God? When Paul says, I pray that you may have knowledge of him, he talks about knowledge of him, you know, having the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Paul is basically reminding the church that you cannot know God unless he reveals himself to you. That God has to come down to us and reveal himself to us, and then we get to know him. And that without the Holy Spirit illumining our hearts and minds, we cannot know. Our eyes are blind. Actually, in chapter 2, right? Verses 1 and following, what does Paul say? So we were dead in our trespasses. We were corpses until God in his mercy and grace came to us and made us alive in Christ Jesus. That the church is only going to know how to appropriate the blessings they already have in Christ Jesus by beginning to know not themselves, but knowing the one who holds the key to all of their blessings. It is the only way for them to appropriate the blessings of God. And so he prays that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened in verses 18. Paul, I have never seen a heart that has eyes. So what does he mean, that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened? In biblical terms, the heart is the seat of our emotions and our will. It is the center, the spiritual center of our life, right? If your heart stopped beating this morning, you would not be here. You'd be dead. As it is with our eyes, so it is with our spiritual vision. Unless those eyes of faith are opened, eyes of our hearts, our inner eyes are opened to see, to know God, but also to understand the blessings that we have, we will not know what it means to appropriate God's blessings for us. It's like asking a blind person to go find something. Something that they cannot see. How are they going to find it? But you give them eyes, or you give them someone to help them, to guide them, to see, then they can get it. So our prayer has to be, Lord, please, by your spirit, help us. Open our eyes that we may grasp, grasp, that we may understand, that we may see what it is that you have for us. Don't you want that? Okay, so he says, I want your spiritual eyes to be open so that you may see what? Three things, quickly. The first, verses 18 and 19. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know, first, what is the hope to which he has called you. I I wish we had a whole lot of time to just kind of talk about the hope that we have as God's people I mean, we can spend two hours right now just talking about our glorious hope that we have in Christ, right? But, you know, since I can't preach for two hours, briefly, this is the hope that God has brought to us by his call, a hope that is held out in the gospel. If you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and received it by grace through faith, you have hope. 
Again, remember, these are Gentiles that were outcasts, that were not supposed to be a part of the covenant family, and yet God has made it possible through Christ. They were dead in their sin. Now, people that were without hope, now they have hope in Christ Jesus. They have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now they're filled with hope in Christ. <laughs> what is our hope as God's people? That we are not the people we used to be, but we are a new creation in Christ. But not just that. We await for a glorious hope that one day we shall be fully saved. We are saved now, but one day we will be fully saved. And that one day we will rise again to be with Jesus Christ and to live in incorruptible bodies. I cannot wait for that day. It is a time that I will not have to deal with coronavirus. A time that I will not have to deal with my struggle with sin. A time that I will not have to face death. Because when I die, I will rise again to a life that knows no death. And I cannot wait for that day. Are you living in that great anticipation, expecting Christ to appear in his glory? And when he does, we will appear with him. And in glory, we shall go with him as the heavens come down here on earth. See, Paul is reminding this church in Ephesus that God did not have a purposeless, random call. That God called the church to something and for something. But let's think about it for one second. What are we called to? We're called to holiness, to live lives that reflect the image of God. Be holy for I am holy. What are we called to? To experience freedom in Christ Jesus, that we live not as slaves to our sins anymore, but we live victorious lives even right now as we await for us to be perfected in heaven. That we're called to peace, not peace that means there's no war, or there's no battle, or there's no sickness, or there's no trials in our life, but it is this. It is shalom, my dear friend. Your name is a powerful name, shalom. It is having peace with God and peace with one another. It is is knowing that things are right because Christ sits on the throne. But we're called to suffering. We're called to endure so much heartache because we were born in sin and this world is broken. But we're also called to remember that the suffering that we experience now is not the end. That there's something much more beautiful that is awaiting us when Christ appears. So we're called to this great hope, ginomous hope, gigantic hope. Secondly, we're called, Paul says, to the, glorious, to the riches of his glorious inheritance in the, in the saints, verse 18. You know, I, when we think about the idea of inheritance in Scripture, it is true that Scripture speaks of the inheritance that we will have in heaven. But I think that Paul is here alluding to a different idea of our inheritance in Christ. And it is not the blessings that he bestows on us in eternity, but rather that those who belong to Jesus Christ have been claimed as his portion, as his treasured possession. 
That God has claimed you to be his son and his daughter. That God has sealed you and guaranteed you by the Holy Spirit that you belong to him. That God has redeemed you and that you are his prized and valued possession. He made you his own. That before the foundations of the world, God knew that you would be his child. I mean... Don't you want to be thankful for that, that you had absolutely nothing to do with your salvation, but God in his infinite wisdom chose you and made you his treasured possession before the foundations of the world? How precious that out of all the things that God has made in the heavens and on earth, he would say, John, Marcus, Shalom, you are mine. You belong to me. I I don't know about you, but I struggle with that, right? I'm a sinner. I'm a weak person. I don't listen all the time to what God wants me to do. I don't obey everything that God tells me to do. And yet he's able to say with all your imperfections, with all your struggles, with all all those things, with the, the things that don't look right in me, he still says, Josiah, you are still my beloved child. You are my treasured possession. He has lavished his love on us. So the hope the inheritance. And finally, he says in verses 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Paul is saying that the church needs to see this amazing power, dunamis in Greek, from where we get the word dynamite. This great power that is at work on their behalf. He wants them to see this incomparable great power that is at work among believers so that they are not shaken by any forces, by anything that's around them. By the way, this message would have been so encouraging for the church in Ephesus, and here's the reason why. We're told that there was the great temple of the goddess Diana, the temple of Artemis, that controlled the social, political, uh, you know, situation in, in, in Ephesus. And, and people worshipped, you know, this goddess. And we're told that when some of these Christians, some of these Gentiles were converted into Christianity from black magic and from worshipping all these idols, even while they were Christians, they lived in such great fear of the forces that existed, spiritual forces, dark forces, And so here's Paul telling them, listen, (laughs) there is one who has greater power than all those potential gods and and other things that you may be. You do not have to be shaken because God is sitting on the throne and he has defeated all these powers. You have the power. You got the power. God has got the power. He's got you. No need for you to be shaken. Can you imagine how encouraging that was to them? He is emphasizing the supremacy of God's power that is shown here specifically in Christ's resurrection and his exaltation into a position of authority. Where does he say Jesus is enthroned? 
Is it lower under the gods and principalities? High above every known power and principality and authority. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Nothing can stand in his way. Nothing can thwart his plans. They can try. And he says, if you want to see this God's power displayed in all of its glory, look at the empty tomb. He's not there. They killed him. They put him in a tomb. On the third day, he rose again. He is not dead. He is alive. What kind of power is it? What kind of power is this resurrection power? It is saving power. For the gospel is the power of God to save, Paul says elsewhere in Romans 1. It is sanctifying power because God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. It is a life-giving power because it guarantees the future resurrection of all who believe. If God was able to raise Jesus Christ from the grave, You need to know as a Christian that one day you will also be able to rise again from the grave and live a life that knows no death. You know, there are two powers in this world that we cannot defeat. You cannot escape death, and you cannot overcome evil. But what did Jesus do when he died and rose again from the grave? He defeated the sting of death. He overcame evil so that we do not have to live under the dominion of evil. We are now raised with Christ again, living victorious lives. And for that, we need to give him thanks and ask God to help him, to help us to know that we have the power in Christ and him alone. And so in his resurrection, Jesus proclaims to us, he lives and that forever. And in his exaltation, he reminds us that he reigns, and that forever. You know, I, I love the little details in scripture that we kind of read texts in the Bible and gloss over them and don't really ask too many questions about, like, you know, what does this mean? Like, Why? Did you read the little detail here about Jesus? That we need to raise him from the dead and see, and in verse 20 he says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Do you ever think about Jesus sitting down at the Father's throne on his right hand? That's not a small detail. Because the idea of Christ being exalted and sitting at the Father's right hand means that Jesus had fully accomplished what the Father had sent him to come and do. He cried out on the cross and he said, It is finished. And now having done the Father's will, God brings him to a place of honor and privilege 
at the Father's right hand, where in his presence the exalted Son of God sits. Why do we have to talk about this power of God that is at work in us? For those of us that believe, it is this. Because that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave is the same power that is at work in you, friend, in you, Christian. So what's my problem? Because I know I got a problem. What's your problem? How come we don't live such victorious life? How come we don't live in such a way that shows that we truly believe that God is powerful, that God, or maybe I'm the only person who has that problem. I give it an illustration this morning when I was preaching, and I'm going to use it again and make fun of Pastor Marcus because, you know, you make fun of people you like. But have you ever gone fishing expecting to bring home dinner? You're all prepared. You got the best bait you could get. And you go in and sit there for hours and... Nothing. And you come back home and the wife goes like, where's dinner? Well... We gotta go to the store and get some sandwiches. Because the fish didn't bite. See, that's our problem. That's our problem, right? As one preacher says, we just don't hook up. The system is in place, the power of God is available to us. We just, we don't bite. We just can't. Whether that's because of our sin, Whether that's because of our unbelief, whether that's because of ignorance, I don't know, but I know I have a problem and I need Jesus to help me so that I may hook up, so I may live a life of confidence that there is power in Christ. And I'm not talking about triumphalism. I'm not talking about, you know, chest thumping Christians saying, oh, I'm victorious, I'm going to conquer the whole world. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about living confident lives where I say I am not able to, but I have one who is able to do more than what I could ever dream or imagine, and his name is Jesus. I don't know, are you experiencing this power of God in your life right now? Or you, like me, you also struggle with controlling yourself, your tongue, your temper, your lust, your pride, your greed. Are you able to come to him and admit that you are not able to control those things? That you cannot defeat those things on your own. Are you able to humble yourself before God and say, Lord, I I do know that you have the power. I cannot control my tongue or my lust, but I serve a mighty God who is able to defeat these things on my behalf and help me to walk with him. Lord, I am ready to hook up. And in verses 22, Paul says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, I'm going to repeat what I said this morning. Pastor Justin is going to help explain what those two verses mean because I don't. 
next week probably. But I have an idea what those verses mean. Do you recognize that Christ sees himself as the groom and you, the bride? The groom is in some ways incomplete without the bride, right? That Jesus desires to be reunited with his bride in heaven forever. That is unfathomable to me. I cannot begin to comprehend the love of Jesus Christ that would send him to the cross to die for me so that I may be forgiven and so that I may live life now waiting for him to come back and take me home with him so that I may be his to behold. I cannot, even if I tried. I'm going to end our time as we think about this passage by telling you a story. My wife, a couple of years ago, a couple of weeks ago, sent me a picture that she received from a friend of ours who's a great artist. It's a story about her faith and her understanding of God's grace. And the picture, was it just caught my, just, caught my attention. It's a beautiful picture. It's a picture of two people in a swimming pool. There's a man who is on the stand on the deep end of the pool, and he is diving straight in, gracefully, joyfully diving into the water. And then here sits or stands this young woman. She's got a life vest on her, sitting in a pool, on the shallow end of the pool. Her hair is intact. You can tell she has not touched the water. You can tell from her face that she is pensive, she's anxious, she's cautious, she's not ready to dive into the water. She's scared. And as I looked at that picture, I thought to myself, which one am I? The man who is standing on the stand and about to dive in the water gracefully, or the woman that sits with a life vest, scared to death? And I realized I identify with the woman. Here's why. Because I know, I know the hope to which Christ has called me to. I know the glorious hope that awaits me. I know that I am God's treasured possession. That is true. I know that with my mind. And I know that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave is the same power that is at work in me. But friends, I have a hard time believing it. I have a hard time seeing it. I have a hard time experiencing it. Is that you this morning? If, if that's you, then I encourage you to do what I pray every day. But Jesus, take me by the hand. Take me to the deep end of the pool and stand with me and tell me, Josiah, it's okay. Let's dive in together because all these spiritual blessings are yours. You can believe them. You can see them. You can experience them. And we, you, you can begin to do that by giving thanks to him for what he has done for you already. And you can do that by continuing to plead for his mercy that God may open the eyes of your heart so that you may see, so that you may grasp, so that you may, you may fully know
the blessings that you have in Christ Jesus because that's how you can keep your spiritual equilibrium to his glory. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. Thank you that you encourage us. You remind us of all these blessings that you've given to us and that they are ours by faith. Lord, there are times when we struggle to see that, when we struggle to believe that, when we struggle to believe it. Would you, Lord, be so gracious and merciful to us to open the eyes of our hearts that we may fully know these truths, that we may live according to your call for us, for your glory and for our own encouragement as we walk in light of your calling to us. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.